everyone, and welcome back to Eat, Eat It Up. Uh, wow, okay. two notes there. We hit two very distinct notes. I'm going to say it. I think that might be sounding better now that I have my actual microphone mic plugged in. I do too, because last time um, it definitely... It didn't sound as fluid. <laughs> for the listeners, just for your interest, Marie and I have spent the last 45 minutes, I would say, trying to figure out why every time we record, my audio is so so weak and so terrible and Marge's is fine, even though we have the same equipment and, and whatever. Mm-hmm. And it sounds okay when we're talking. It's just in the recording, there's an issue. Well, it turns yeah. out uh, the, the past maybe two, three episodes, <laughs> I've actually just been recording with my uh, internal microphone for my computer rather than... Uh, the microphone that I actually bought. So that's deeply embarrassing. Glad we figured it out and hoping that the audio quality is is better for this uh, episode today. And that's why Sam is the Luddite of this episode. (laughs) I know. Honestly, I'm a secret Luddite. I know we kind of agreed a couple episodes ago, maybe not to to use that word for that purpose, but here we are. It kind of is fitting. If you're just tuning in for the first time, welcome back to Eat It Up, our podcast where we talk about a bite of history that we're interested over some snacks. So Sam, what snack are you eating today? So today I'm eating a cinnamon bun from Cineholic, um, which is like a cinnamon bun store bakery in Lansdowne in Ottawa. We Uber Eats it, but um, it held up just fine. It's got like cream cheese icing, strawberries, blueberries. It's kind of, and like chocolate sauce. It's kind of the simple one, but I I wanted that. It looks so gooey. Like it looks so nice and warm and gooey. It's honestly, it's really, really good from my first few bites. So what are you eating today? Okay, so everyone, I always try to tie it back to whatever we're talking about. Okay, so what I'm eating today, I was looking up, because the topic today is Y2K, I was like, okay, I have to get it a treat that was like the most iconic in the year 2000. So I did some researching, and there's two options. There were either cupcakes or creme brulee. Oh, and so I was like, okay, I feel like in, n- n- whoa, <laughs> I feel like in episodes coming up, I can probably do cupcakes somewhere else. Like they tend to fit in a mm, lot of places. They're flexible. They're flexible. But how often do you read something and it says creme brulee is the, the dessert of the year? Yeah. I mean, like maybe if we're doing a French history episode, you could do creme brulee, oh, yeah. but I mean, okay. I, I need to hear another. I totally, I agree. You're cupcakes annoyed are, that I used my creme brulee at this no, time. No, no, no. <laughs> cupcakes are, I agree, are much more flexible. So more flexible. good on so, you. And I was, I was so excited because essentially there's this creme brulee place in Vancouver. We have an actual creme brulee place, which I think is not so, and it's called Crackle Creme. And I've been wanting to go there for maybe seven years now. And I just never like kind of got around to it. And I was like, this is the chance for me to put this to use. And so I went there, got a couple of creme brulees. And as of right now, it is absolutely delicious. I got, I think eight and I've eaten, I've eaten two or three already. So I can, I can say that I know that I love them. Yeah. I will, I will preface though. Um, they, I got a couple of vegan ones just to try. I would say if you're not vegan, probably don't get those ones. They're not as yummy as the as the ones with eggs and dairy in them. What are they brulee if it's not creme? Like if it's so vegan. I think 
I guess I was talking to my aunts about it. I think the big things is that it wouldn't actually be the switching of the the cream in it as much because I got one that was mango coconut. You can easily substitute coconut cream. Oh. But I think what makes the custard the texture that you want it is eggs. Oh. And so I think it's like trying to substitute eggs can sometimes be difficult for vegan options. Okay, you just absolutely schooled my ass on bacon. So <laughs> on desserts. <laughs> I don't know. I I don't know. I, that's what I that's what I think it is that changed like the texture of it. And okay. so I would just say, still yummy. If you're a vegan, it is a good option. But if okay. you're not vegan, I would opt for the options that have dairy and egg in them. They're a little bit more creamy right. um, flavoring. So vegans in the Lower Mainland, listen up. Listen up. Maria has something to say to you. <laughs> so yeah, the flavor that I'm having today is called Pandan Coconut. Ooh, and okay. so Pandan, I think. It's more of a plant. Okay. And in my head, I think it gives off sort of like that aromatic flavor, like a lavender wood. Is, oh. So coconut is more the fruity flavor and pandan is giving it a more aromatic, uh, flowery flavor. Okay. Well, I'm happy to hear that. Um, <laughs> well, okay. I feel like it's a bit of a foregone conclusion on what you are going to think about these creme brulee seeing you've already had um two or so far but i'm glad i'm glad that we know you're gonna like it i guess yeah yeah so this is apparently the dessert of the 2000s i couldn't figure out why people right. were just saying that creme brulees made a big comeback in the year 2000 so wow. that's what we got <laughs> i love it well what a great a great segue into our um our bite of history which maria kind of gave away but i think we're okay with that now we've decided um it's in the title we've decided again, that it- <laughs> once again it's actually in, in the title so uh this week we're talking about y2k thanks to a suggestion yes. from our listener kaylee omira thank you kaylee for the suggestion thank as you, always kaylee. if anyone has any suggestions for a topic to cover uh, please let us know. It's actually, it makes it a lot easier for us. And it's really fun looking into things that, that people are interested. Yeah. But Y2K, Maria, do you, like, let's, I guess, get into our bio history for this episode. What do you know about Y2K? What does it mean to you? Anything? Uh, I does guess it mean not nothing to you? <laughs> uh, I guess the thing for me is we were three years old when Y2K happened. So everyone around Facts. us was probably freaking out. Yeah. But I was in my own little Barbie dream world at that age. Yeah. The innocence of youth, really. We had no idea of the storm that was raging around us. It was just us. your average five foot tall three-year-old running around. Were you really? <laughs> no. Oh, I'm, like, I'm like, I know I you're tall huge. now, but okay. I was like, <laughs> so that's impressive. Um, okay. So, so you don't really have much of an impression about it. Not totally. I did ask my dad before we recorded. I was like, right. what? What did you do for Y2K? It seems yeah. like my parents didn't really care a whole ton. Right. Um, they they just, they had heard and they knew that people were freaking out about right. um, the world coming to an end, essentially. But I don't mm-hmm. think that they put a lot of stock into it. Right. Well, that's really interesting because it, it seems from the research I did that people responded very differently to it. And we'll kind of, we'll talk about it throughout the episode, but there were several camps of people, some people who were convinced that Y2K was a serious threat, like, and was legitimate. And you, we'll talk about it a bit later, but um, the Canadian government, the US government, both took it really seriously as a threat. 
there were, uh, you know, some people who were maybe more in the conspiracy realm who thought it was a threat. I love to be in that realm. But I mean, we're living in it every day. But um, (laughs) who were convinced it was a threat, but really they thought it was because like of the new world order, like a globalist conspiracy to, to remove civil liberties. So kind of maybe not realistic. And then there was another kind of group of people who thought that the the fear and the anxiety around Y2K, this end of the world in 2000 was overblown. Right, so, okay. you know, you saying your parents were kind of ambivalent about it or, or maybe more indifferent to it. I think my parents were the same, but I know people who like prepped for it, who like got water and, and food and were ready for weeks. And, you know, right. before I was researching, I was like, was that like really necessary? And like, honestly, based on the research I did, and based on how seriously governments took it, I don't think it was inappropriate for people to right. respond that way. But In I also, a way, our parents almost could have screwed us over. We could have <laughs> like actually died. So unprepared. <laughs> no, we would have been fine, probably. Okay, so Y2K. What is Y2K? So you've, I guess, identified correctly, Marge, that it was the almost end of the world in 2000. Um, so Y2K is actually shorthand. I didn't know this, but Y2K is shorthand for the year 2000, like Y year 2K for 2000. So, so initially it didn't even actually refer to this, this end of the world that was going to be attributed to the collapse of all computer systems. It actually just referred to the year 2000 and the start of this new millennium. So So, in the year 3000, it'll be Y3K. Exactly. Okay. You, you just got the pattern like you're a whiz. I don't even know how you did that. Great no, three math. It comes in. And I'm like, and what would the year 8,000 be, Marge? Stop. No, <laughs> Y8K. Okay. Y8K. Yeah. And, and you'd be right. Um, so yeah, so Y2K referred to the year 2000, but it also referred to this issue with computer programs Uh, that was expected to wreak havoc across the world as these computers entered the new millennium. So as the clocks changed from December 31st, 1999 to January 1st, 2000, there was a fear that computers across the world would basically collapse. The computer programs that were developed through like the 60s into the 80s that were being used in the 90s used a date-based system that only included the last two digits of a year. So say if the year was like 1975, they would just record the date as like, say, April 7th, 75. Mm -hmm. And so the reason they did that was just because like of storage purposes, it reduced the number of storage that computers needed to record those two extra digits. And it was implied like if the year was 75, it was going to be 1975, right? Mm -hmm. And so like a lot of computers that use, I guess, these date-based systems or a lot of software that uses like a date-based system to say like in the financial world to calculate interest at the time for um, controlling like air traffic and for scheduling like planes coming and going, like Mm. all of those things rely on accurate dates. Um, And so there was a fear that when those two digits, 99, which were recorded in computers across the world, switched to zero, zero, that these computers would read that as January 1st, 1900, and that that would wreak all sorts of havoc in terms of these software systems for like scheduling flights, for example, because like there were no flights, there were like not commercial flights in 1900, right? So all right. the flights that were scheduled for that day would 
there was no record of anymore or like oh. things like that. Or it's like if you were calculating interest based on the years before and like financial institutions, mm-hmm. if it switched to like 1900, that would totally screw up all the data sets and it would fall apart. So obviously I don't understand all the deep technicalities of it because I'm not a programmer. So maybe if you're a programmer and listening, you can let me sound know. off. <laughs> sound off if that was a, a decent explanation. But in essence, these dates were required to for, for a lot of software programs to run. And so there was a fear that you might have like system collapses across the world in various sectors because of these, the 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 inaccurate recording of dates in these computers because they only ever recorded those two digits so that was the the fear around y2k and like built on top of those kind of like more mundane fears about around like say scheduling airplanes or, or or flights or trains or other things um, or in terms of financial institutions calculating interest or or anything else there was also a fear that like nuclear systems, which apparently also rely on um, date-based information for various like safety processes, that they would have technical issues and there might be security threats from that, that um, viruses and other bacteria that are kept in labs that have like strict biosecurity, that the computer systems that um, protect them and make sure that they're not easily accessed could be disrupted so that people could access them or they could get out. Um, there was fears around like power outages and like supply chain disruption and so on and so on. So if that makes sense, this like little like technical issue with the dates, Mm -hmm. people were worried that it would become like a a massive, like it would cause society to collapse basically. So then I feel if I was consciously aware of this in the year 2000, I would be stressed out living in Australia, but kind of chill if I was living in like BC because by the time that time comes around, it's like we've seen it work everywhere else almost. So I don't know. I just think if I was on the forefront of that time zone, I would be freaking out. But by the end of it, I wouldn't be as stressed. So you're actually really right about that. Like a lot of people and we'll get into like who, like I mentioned earlier on, like who was who took this seriously, who didn't Mm -hmm. Canadian government officials did believe that Y2K was a serious threat and spent years planning in advance of the year 2000 for it. And they were tracking, as were people across Canada and the United States in business, they were tracking what was going on in Australia and in New Zealand. So they could see like if the the fears and anxieties around Y2K would come true. And they didn't really. So, and the same thing, like once... Um, it started at like once midnight was struck in the Maritimes and there weren't any significant issues. And the same thing later in Ontario, like the West Coast was much more, uh, they were much less anxious <laughs> about it becoming an issue. But yeah, you're right. totally right. It is like, it is weirdly like a time zone thing. It would, um, it would opposite be incredibly stressful though if you saw everything collapsing and you were just waiting for it to hit. Oh, totally. And if you're it like- turned out Aust- positive, but- <laughs> Yeah, and if you're Australia, it's like, you're the first one to figure out what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe not the first, I don't know, time zones, but I was like before most other people. Yes. Yes. And in terms of, I guess, like where Y2K was seen as an issue, like, like we've alluded to, uh, Canada and the United States were really concerned about Y2K. The United Kingdom was, Australia was, and all of them in the years leading up to the year 2000 spent 
millions and billions of dollars in trying to switch over their computer systems or upgrade them so that they included those first two digits, like the one nine or the two zero to try and avert the crisis. Yes. And they actually actively encouraged businesses to do the same. Okay. Whereas other countries such as Russia, Italy, Japan, they were broadly skeptical of Y2K and they did little to prevent what many saw as a catastrophe. So it wasn't like, it wasn't necessarily a global panic, though, Mm -hmm. um, like I know the OECD, they were convinced that, um, or like warned, I guess, against the potential of catastrophe from Y2K. Okay. So that's kind of the, the 101 of Y2K. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay, cool. So let's talk a little bit then about the timeline leading up to Y2K. Yes. So like I mentioned, um, governments and businesses around the world were aware that Y2K might be an issue and could have catastrophic consequences and so tried to preempt it. So that was towards like the end of the 90s, but people were actually aware there might be an issue with these computer systems not being able to recognize the year 2000, all the way back to at least the 80s. So back in the 80s, people were at least aware in um, the computer industry that there might be an issue with these computers switching over. And even in 1987, the New York Stock Exchange spent almost $30 million to try and preempt any issues that the year 2000 would bring 13 years later. So some businesses and organizations were aware of it a little bit earlier, but it's not really until 1993 that it starts to actually become uh, a public issue that people are worried about. So it's in 1993 that this Canadian IT consultant named Peter DeYager, who lived in Brampton, he kind of becomes one of the main proponents that Y2K is coming is real and that there's going to be this massive like calamity if something oh, isn't done. Wasn't that crazy? Canada. I know, go, go Canada. Canada. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, and a fear monger, baby. Fear I know. And I was like, at first I was like, oh my gosh, Canadian fear mongering. That's so, we're so great to have like him like in our camp. But I mean, there's debates, right, around whether or not Y2K was a real threat. So maybe it was important that he he did something. So in 93, this guy, Diogger, he writes a three-page piece in Computer World magazine. And this three-page spread is called Doomsday 2000. And so it predicts uh, the chaos that would ensue as a result of what they called the millennium bug, like this issue with changing over to the, to the, to the year 2000. Um, and he's kind of credited with starting to spur the world into action. So okay. de Yager later on appears before Canadian parliamentary committees, before US government to like testify about the threat that Y2K posed and like was really one of the key figures in uh, in saying that we need to do something to prevent Y2K. He traveled all around the world speaking about it. So, so a very influential figure. Right. So then in terms of like what he actually, I guess, motivated the government to do, I looked at both kind of the Canadian context and the U.S. context because I thought they were both interesting to see how the governments responded to it because I thought Mm -hmm. that will really show whether or not it was perceived as a real threat. And in both Canada and the U.S., governments took it as as a serious issue, uh, a public policy issue. And actually, it's kind of funny or scary to hear how seriously they took it. So in the years leading up to, to the year 2000, there's some interest that... Or, or like I said, like in 93, that's when Peter de Yager really like makes, starts making this formal push. Mm-hmm. But 
by the year 90, by the fall of 97, only 9% of Canadian businesses had a formal plan to deal with Y2K. And in the years that follow that would, that number would increase, but to um, government officials, that was like concerning at the time that only 9% had a plan to us. Now that might be interesting that even in 97, like 10% of businesses had an actual formal strategy yeah. to deal with Y2K that like that seemed to me to be a lot but to them at the time it wasn't right uh in the year following you have uh, five major Canadian banks announcing they're going to spend about 120 million dollars each to prepare for Y2K to like change over their computer systems and then Canada's cabinet in February of 19 of 1998 has a meeting and receives several presentations on the threat of Y2K Jean Chrétien made it clear to all cabinet members that Y2K was to be a priority and that, quote, all other business was to be secondary. So you see at this point, like there was a genuine concern amongst high ranking government officials in Canada that like Y2K could actually result in the collapse of Canadian society. Um, So I thought that was a pretty powerful quote. So, um, you have in like in advance of the year 2000, the Canadian government ends up hiring around 11,000 people to work to try and update Canada's government computer systems across agencies and departments. Can we just talk about this for a sec, though? I'm sure yeah. those agents like great on them. Good job. But for the people leading that and developing the policy around Y2K after after January 1st, 2000 having that on your resume is almost embarrassing like I feel it wouldn't actually be a great job to have because it's like I worked on some of the most useless policy in Canadian history totally like there there was that debate right like like at right after a lot of the the naysayers who said there was never really an issue were like oh well look you spent all this money for nothing but then conversely the people who said it was an issue pointed to a couple cases around the world where there were minor issues when 2000 hit and said, Um, well, actually we averted a huge crisis in these areas by changing the system over. So it kind of confirmed both camps point of views on it because one said, well, we actually prevented it by doing all this work and the other camps like, well, it never was an issue. So I think it's still contested to a bit, but I agree. It would be kind of awkward. Like to us, at least we're talking about it. Like why decay? What's that? Um, yes. But to them, it was a huge issue, right? Like it was to be the priority above everything else, according to Jean Chrétien. So, right. Um, okay. And I mean, like other context, other context in um, in terms of how Canada responded, we had a steering panel called the Year 2000 Contingency Planning Steering Committee. Um, in December of 1999, Ontario Hydro suggested to the Ontario public that people should stockpile food, water, and cash. The Canadian Armed Forces had a budget of $350 million to prepare for Y2K. Oh my gosh. And um, 13,000 troops were on standby, like right before Y2K in case of an emergency. Oh, okay. I was like on standby for what? Like, oh no. But okay. No, I think just in terms of like general collapse and emergency. Okay. Um, Okay. And even it's funny if you look at like the Hansard, like the the record of government debate, in like the years leading up to 2000, like 1998, 1999, like this is a question that came up in question period all the time. Like you would see the opposition members asking the government, like, what are you going to do to prepare Health Canada 
for Y2K. And they'd say, oh, well, actually 93% of our systems are Y2K compliant or whatever. And and so it became like, it actually was to an extent a, a political issue too. Yeah. So that's kind of the Canadian context. In terms of U.S., you see like similar things. In 98, Clinton establishes um, via executive order the President's Council on Year 2000 Conversion, which was basically to coordinate a response to Y2K amongst government, but also to encourage businesses to act too and to like get a formal Y2K plan. And I found one Washington Post article from 1999. And in that article, they said that the government to date had spent $8.4 billion across its departments and agencies to avoid the crisis in the two years leading up to it. And in today's money, like considering inflation, that's about $13 billion. Oh, shoot. So like it was like both Canada and the U.S. were like seriously concerned about it. (laughs) In terms of like business response, um, it's funny, like you can still find articles from like the years before that again, are unsure about what's going to happen. But um, I found one academic article from this prof of business law in 1999, who noted that Citicorp, which was like an investment bank, had spent $600 million to prepare, that General Motors had spent, I think, around a billion in advance to try and fix the millennium bug. Um, And this article actually tries to anticipate what the legal ramifications of Y2K are. So who might be held liable for malfunctions? What might the damages be? Um, There were already 28 class action lawsuits filed around Y2K, around issues where computer software that was forward-looking had already had issues uh, managing the date 2000. So yeah, that's kind of the, the business response. And like I said, there were a couple of issues in advance of the year 2000 where mm-hmm. software systems had started to malfunction already when they were using like the future dates for 2000 for calculations mm-hmm. or t- to function so for example amway a, a cosmetics manufacturer rejected a, a big batch of chemicals that it thought was going to be over 100 years old that was not oh. but it, because it was calculating it based on this year on the zero zero so it assumed 1900 not 2000 so oh, yeah. there was evidence of that. Um, there was evidence of a person in Minnesota who was over 100 years old who was automatically sent an invitation to enroll in kindergarten, because oh. which is kind of sweet, actually. But these little things here and there in advance of the year 2000, I think, stoked some, some fear that if it wasn't dealt with properly, that when yeah. computers changed en masse to 2000, you would have a big issue. We can't be sending out all these kindergarten evites. There's I know. No- <laughs> I was like, that was one of the examples that I read in one of the, the histories of it. I was like, okay, that's maybe not the most dire of things. It's kind of <laughs> cute, actually. But so that was that was kind of the lead up to Y2K. What actually happened? So generally, there were very few issues around the world with Y2K. Awesome. There, were, Yeah, which is great to hear. There were some. <laughs> and so the, I guess the, the useful comparison is between countries that were very fearful and tried to invest to respond to Y2K, like Canada, US, UK, Australia, versus the Y2K skeptical countries like Japan, Italy, Russia, who basically did nothing. So generally, Russia, Italy, Japan had no greater proportion of issues with the year 2000 than the US, Canada, 
or any other country that had prepared. So to a lot of people that vindicated them and saying that Y2K really wasn't a significant issue at any point, right? Because they hadn't really done anything and, yeah. and their computers were fine. But there were some concerning instances where the computer switched over to the year like zero, zero, and it caused malfunctions. So there was a nuclear facility in Ishikawa, Japan that had some equipment fail, um, but its backup system worked. So there didn't end up being a threat to the public. Um, but like once you get start dealing with nuclear failures, like that yeah. does get concerning. Other issues like the U.S. lost touch with some of its spy satellites for a period. Um, Britain's national health system had issues with sending out incorrect medical results to women. So, th- so there oh. were some some minor issues. Um, even in countries that tried to prepare, like the U.S. and the U.K., but mm-hmm. there wasn't any kind of en masse collapse in either countries that tried to prepare or countries that didn't. Right. But Canada did a post-mortem report on uh, what would have happened had they not acted and not invested all this money in switching over. And they, in this report, they argued that 22 food inspection systems, um, computers that regulate day-to-day immigration approvals, Environment Canada's ice forecasting software, which sounds very important, and 18 (laughs) million lines of code that manage the production of pension and welfare check might have malfunctioned had they not have spent that money. So who knows? Maybe that's them trying to justify an investment or whatever. But yeah, on on the whole, there there weren't any huge issues. And um, even... One another kind of funny example, Australia had spent millions preparing for Y2K and they even recalled all their staff from their embassy in Russia for fear of what would happen. And then nothing really did. But um, I have to say Japan made a bold choice because they're they're one of the first that's going to get white like the changeover to January 1st. Yeah. And for them just to not prepare whatsoever. Like what if something happened in Australia? They would have very minimal time to figure themselves out oh yeah no it was bold but maybe they knew something like maybe they weren't as convinced so yeah right (laughs) they're like we have developed some of these systems it'll be okay (laughs) yeah it'll be fine so um that's the overview of y2k in a little bit more detail in the years leading up do you have any questions Mm -hmm. for me marge about that that all makes sense to you it did so i guess the big thing what canada was doing which is essentially kind of switching the programs so it would have the four digits as opposed to just the two digits that's my understanding is that they okay. tried to make computers Y2K compliant so that they would be able to recognize it was the year 2000, not the year 1900. Right. And so the big concern for Y2K was because of computers. It wasn't just because we're switching into a, a new millennia and people were stressed out about that in some weird way, like we were about 2012. Okay. And the calendar and stuff. Well, here's where things get a little bit trickier. And I might, if it's okay with you, I might want to talk about the religious dimensions of Y2K. You know, I'm always okay with that. Okay. Because (laughs) the the one I think that, and I hopefully I'll get to that question in a kind of roundabout way Mm -hmm. was why did countries like the US, Canada, Australia, and the UK respond so fearfully around Mm -hmm. Y2K and other countries like Italy, Japan, Russia didn't. Right. So one argument that a scholar, Nancy Schaefer, makes, who's a religious studies scholar, she argues that at least in the United States, this fear of the end of the world in Y2K has a lot to do with popular religious conceptions of the apocalypse that 
has a particular history in the United States and to a lesser extent in Britain and Canada than in other countries like Italy, Russia, and China that have different religious and cultural views of like the end of the world. Are you hooked? So sorry. <laughs> I'm going to, I'll get into it, but like. Okay. So we have conceptions of end of the world that some other countries and their religions don't have. So yeah. So she basically argues, Nancy Schaefer argues that apocalyptic thinking in the United States is much more, is like very culturally pervasive at right. every level yes. in a way that perhaps is not, and she doesn't explicitly make this argument, but I think it's a reasonable conclusion. Like she says, one of the reasons why the U S responded so strongly to it is because there's this long history of apocalyptic thinking and repeated predictions. The world was going to end yes. that you don't see in the same way in religious communities in other places right. around the world. Okay. Okay. That's honestly fair. There's like two ways that that works. So like I mentioned, there's like this widespread apocalyptic thinking across the U.S. and that there's this proclivity for apocalyptic thinking, even for those who aren't like part of a particular religious group that is predicting the end of the world, that because of uh, the United States' religious history, that you have this really popular idea of like the apocalypse. She also, so that's kind of one bucket that she thinks influences like uh, these anxieties around Y2K. The other one is more specific, I guess, and something you can point to historically. So she goes through all these really influential televangelists who are, if you're not familiar, Christian television personalities who have these massively popular TV shows starting kind of at the the end of the 50s, but really picking up through the 60s and, and into the 90s. Um, and that they spurred on this fear of Y2K as basically the apocalypse, a judgment from God. Um, and that the at the end of these tribulations, Christ would return, cast out the Antichrist, and then Christ would rule over the earth for a thousand years. So they actually, you see um, people like Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, oh, yeah. who say explicitly on their shows that have these massive audiences, they they warn about Y2K, they tell their listeners and their viewers to prepare, they sell videotapes that give them like special instructions on how to prepare, they have like websites that are resource centers for how to prepare, like all these things. So she argues that like, not only is there like this pervasive cultural thinking, but there's also like actual historical instances of these preachers saying Y2K is basically the end of the world. And so in their mind, when Christ would come and get rid of the Antichrist, it would also mean that anyone who had been sinful would then be punished or... There's a couple of things like I'll, I can get into a little bit of the religious history. So for where this thinking comes and I, it'll hopefully explain a little bit that question. So, um, at the end of the 19th century in the mm -hmm. UK, this religious philosophy called dispensationalism emerges, and then it spreads to the United States. And in short, dispensationalism was this idea that human history was split up into these periods that were called dispensations. And in these periods, God would test human humankind for their faith. And every time that they failed, God would punish them. So the first example of this was when humans were cast out of Eden. The second time was the flood. The third time was the Tower of Babel and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. And so in this thinking that emerges in the, the, the end of the 19th century is that we are in one of these 
periods, these dispensations, and we're coming, it's coming to an end, that society is evil and corrupt, and that we're basically on the precipice of punishment from God. So, right. so that's kind of the, the thinking that um, emerges at the end of the 19th century. It's popularized with something called the Schofield Reference Bible, which you might have heard of. It's, it's usually referenced to in histories of evangelical Christianity in the United States. But basically, it was a King James Bible that this Bible student Cyrus Schofield annotated and put forth this um, kind of popular view of dispensationalism that then circulated and sold across the U.S., so that's kind of one philosophy that undergirds the later thinking of these televangelists. The other one that's related is this idea of pre-millennialism, which is basically that um, sim- like that relates to dispensationalism. So pre-millennialism is the view that that Christ will return to earth to rule over the earth for an, a thousand year reign called the millennium. Mm-hmm. That's premillennialism. There's other people who were thinking at the time uh, what's called postmillennialism, which is this idea that um, there would be a thousand years of like peace and justice on earth, and then Christ would come back at the end of it. So with this kind of what's called premillennial dispensationalism is this idea that society, like the sign that Christ is going to return and the millennium will be brought about is that like society will fall into disrepair disrepair into decadence there'll be some sort of like apocalypse that they call the tribulations and then at the end of that period of the tribulations usually like seven years christ returns and then you get that that millennium um and so there was debate amongst a, a lot of religious groups in the united states like what happens to people who are experiencing this tribulation like are the faithful raptured up before shit gets bad or do they have to live through it Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So there's different theologies around it, but there mm-hmm. was a group of people who thought that they would have to live through these tribulations, even as the faithful. There were mm-hmm. other people who thought they'd be raptured up physically and they wouldn't have to live through the tribulations. So for those people that thought like they wouldn't be raptured up, they're like, we got to prepare because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. we're about to live through the tribulations. You know what I mean? Right. So does that make sense? Like to- the purge. Kind of like yeah, kind of like. The pur- yeah, God's purge or something. I don't know. Fun. Did that make sense? I think so. Sorry, that was kind of complicated. It was a little bit complicated, but yeah. I don't think it was you making it complicated. No. It's just because there's so many different no. groups. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like the main point that I like the, the key to it is just knowing that the United States has this history of this thinking around like periods of time where when things get really bad, that's a sign mm-hmm. of God's punishment. Mm-hmm. And that this time round in the current age, that when punishment ended, Christ would return and there would be a thousand years of peace and justice and that some followers would have to live through it. And so that's right. like the one of like the, the strands of thinking that goes all the way through into the 60s, the 70s, the 80s with these televangelists who take up that similar position. Um, and across the United States, more broadly, there's this thinking around um the end of the world and this idea that um, the nation will be punished by God and then Christ will return. And so that's what Nancy Schaefer saying when she's saying like, there's this widespread apocalyptic thinking. That's what she's pointing to is this, this reference Bible that goes across the United States that puts forth this idea that when the world ends, whatever shit gets bad, Christ comes back. It's all good. Right. So 
when you have these like televangelists, Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, like they have huge audiences, like starting really like they start their shows in the 50s, like late 50s, and they they really get popular in the decades to follow. Mm-hmm. Falwell had a show with like 50 million regular viewers. So yeah, so you have these televangelists like Falwell, mm-hmm. Tammy Faye Baker, Pat Robertson, they have these huge followings, like 50 million regular viewers. Right. Um, and this is also a period like the 60s through the 80s is when um, this evangelical Christian movement, a lot of scholars describe them as kind of going public. So they start becoming yes. way more politically involved. They are using these new media technologies to get their messages across. In 79, Falwell creates this moral majority, which is this political advocacy group to who uh, lobby the government, who try and register voters, who try and fundraise, and to push Republican politicians to take like um, certain stances on abortion, homosexuality, mm-hmm. like certain foreign policy interests. And they're credited kind of with Reagan's victory in 1980 because yes. of their influence and, and they they become powerful for quite a while. So all that to say, that's kind of the context that we're looking at with these televangelists who are using these dispensationalist premillennial kind of views of the end of the world and who are saying explicitly to their followers, like Y2K is going to be the end of the world. And you have more broadly in the American public, this sense of that a similar like thinking, even even if not everyone believed it literally, there was already that kind of that thinking in the American public that the, this reference Bible had circulated widely that even regardless necessarily of your religious identification or your denomination, that those views were at least popular and you would have heard of them. And so that kind of creates fertile ground for this Y2K. Um, fear. And so a lot of people, you know, like were scared. There's some instances of people like trying to get their kids to have wisdom teeth surgery before the year 2000. So that like, they don't have wisdom teeth issues, like after, you know, society collapses, people move into the wilderness. And that wasn't obviously the, the, the majority response, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. some people were concerned and Schaefer argues that um, that there was a religious element that that encouraged people to do that. And to, to get back to your question, she thinks that this new millennium does kind of have to do something with these anxieties, right? Like that we're literally entering a temporally new millennium and that mm-hmm. that kind of lines up with this thinking about a Christian millennium that Christ will reign over for a thousand years. There had okay. been, been predictions for a long time that the end of times would come after the year 2000. And so there's a certain like symbolism to, you know, the world failing because the computers switch over um, to the year 2000. There's predictions already that that's going to happen, that the world's going to end. And there's also like some kind of anti-technological views amongst certain groups that saw our reliance on technology as being um, sinful or as being like away from God's plan. And so I can't believe I just said God's plan. Um, (laughs) and so that like, how fitting would that be for the antichrist to bring around like this, um, this punishment because of our reliance on technology. So it, so it kind of does have to do with like the anxiety, I think generally around switching into the year 2000, because there were already views that, you know, the end of the world would come in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. But there's also, I think, these religious elements like broadly in American culture and um, obviously more specifically with these people trying to like sell products like these televangelists saying like the world is ending by this emergency food stuff or like buy my $28 mm-hmm. videotape that will tell you how to survive or whatever. 
Yeah, it gets them straight to heaven, eh, when they do that? It does, actually. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. My mom that's... still tunes in to televangelist. I love it. I love it, too. It's very loud in the house. Just make sure that they're not trying to sell her end of the world stuff. We just get, like, a massive box of all these, like, stocked things. <laughs> like, huh, that's weird. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of the, that's the religious portion of it. Um, mm-hmm. People were mad at a lot of these televangelists when... Um, they, you know, had bought all these products and the apocalypse never really materialized. Yeah, but that would be upsetting. <laughs> kind of parallel to the people who were trying to fix computers to avoid the crisis. Some televangelists and writers argued that it was because people had prayed and taken it so seriously that the end of the world was averted. So you do see yeah. some parallels there too. Definitely. So um, that's kind of all I have for this i can do the the impacts later i don't really have much to say on it but did that make sense is there anything you want me to like re-say or summarize that wasn't clear to you so i guess there's kind of two big like ways of thinking about y2k mm-hmm. there's the side of it that in general people were concerned more about computer systems and technology being able to kind of adapt and move into the new millennium right but then there was also the other side that certain countries and the religious groups that are prominent in those countries have historically this end of world mindset. And so that also created a fear about entering this new millennia and it wasn't present in every country. But for those that it was, it was this fear that all of a sudden things would kind of collapse and it would be a test for all of us when Christ finally comes. Totally. Yeah. Like that's my interpretation of it, that like countries like Italy, where the Catholic church is much more powerful than, um, than in say North America or, um, or Russia, right. With the Orthodox church or Japan, where there is, there are Christian groups, but they're not by any means hegemonic. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. at least she, like Nancy Schaefer makes this argument about the United States. I think you could make claims that because of the, because of colonization and because of the similar cultures of Canada, UK, and New Zealand that obviously have different religious histories, but are much more linked that Mm -hmm. you could see some parallels in terms of their responses. Um, And at least even like the, the cultures that we live in influence our politicians and how we view things like, like at the political level, but also at the popular level, we can't necessarily say that like, these religious histories cause people to like put like politicians to worry about Y2K, but that at least it was fertile ground for apocalyptic thinking. Um, Mm -hmm. And that perhaps it made it overblown, like the the risk that was actually there. That's at least the argument Nancy Schaefer makes. And I think it's like a a fair one. And it was just fun to talk about like apocalyptic history. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Sam. Yeah. I hope (laughs) you liked it. it. Sorry. I went down an evangelical rabbit hole, but it was just so interesting that like, these televangelists were literally preaching that Y2K was the end of the world. And you have this like religious anxiety superimposed on like kind of a technical anxiety. Oh yeah. Like just, I feel like that's totally taking advantage of people's fears and then manipulating them for your own monetary gain. Okay, well, how is your um, food? My creme brulee. Your creme brulee. 
It's delicious. Yeah. Yeah. Still good. It has that good. I guess the catch is, is that um, for creme brulee, when you brulee the sugar, yeah, it only stays like that sort of level of crunch for about eight hours and then oh. it just softens. I didn't know that. But then to, it just be basically, like the one I'm eating now, um, I brulee it. It's fine. It, it is crunchy. Right. But I had one that did go soft and it's still delicious because it basically just turns into flan. And I love oh, flan. Oh, okay. I so don't even like, know the difference. So flan is just, it's sort of like a traditional Mexican dessert, I believe. Okay. But it's essentially where the, you normally bake it one way and then when you flip it out, it's sort of like that liquidy sugar is on top of the custard. Oh, okay. And so essentially when you have a creme brulee that the sugar on top goes soft, Right. It just becomes that where it's like this liquidy caramelized sugar over top of a custard. It becomes a flan. It becomes a flan. And so it's delicious either way. <laughs> wow. I'm learning so much about flans today. I could be just preaching misinformation, but that's what I think. Hey, that's what we do here. We just straight up lie. <laughs> just straight up lies. <laughs> misinformation. Actually, you're trying to confuse me. <laughs> and so uh, how's your cinnamon bun? Your gooey cinnamon bun? It's good. I'm really liking like a lot of their their options for cinnamon buns were very, I think I maybe said this at the start, like they're very sugary. Like they have lots of like sauce and like cookie dough and whatever, which is, which is good. I think like for a dessert at the end of the day, but seeing as it's more like earlier in the day and it's more like a breakfast brunch thing. I wanted something. That's why I wanted the one with fruit, like with strawberries and blueberries and like cream cheese icing, which like obviously still sounds like dessert, but it's like, (laughs) it's less. So you have to trust me than if you look at like the other, the other yes. menu options that are much like heavier, like brownie and cookie dough and all these other things. Well, I find so many times too, though, when you're eating a sort of very, because cinnamon buns are such a sweet dessert, like fruit cuts the sweetness in such a nice way. Yes, totally. And it almost adds to it. It's like when you're eating pancakes to have like strawberries and blueberries on top adds to it. Totally. I'm glad we're breaking this down. <laughs> break the stigma of fruit break the on stigma dessert. of having fruit on your breakfast foods no i totally agree though it, it did it kind of made me feel a bit healthier i don't know yeah especially with cream cheese icing you got your dairy there and your fruit, exactly so you're covered. <laughs> it's the whole food all the food groups all of so. it yeah. okay so sam do we want to talk about significance sure let's get into it so uh, why did you know this one I actually struggled weirdly a little bit more with figuring out the significance, at least what right. I think is a reasonable interpretation of significance. Um, I mean, some articles pointed to the lasting impact of Y2K being the influence on the computer industry and the fact that governments around the world invested hundreds of millions of dollars to bring in people who could like coders who could try and like beat the y2k bug okay and then it kind of kick-started or really contributed to um the burgeoning computer industry around the world so for example tech companies in the u.s uh lobbied the government to change uh their skilled worker visas um to let way more people in with skilled work visas to to work on the issue um some work was outsourced to india to deal with the problem and so that helped kickstart india's um computer industry that now employs like millions of people. Right. Um, so there's kind of like on that level, like it was, it was a huge investment. Okay. In, and it created lots tech. of jobs. It created lots of jobs. And okay. some people say it, it was significant that way. Others too argued that the investments in the tech then helped actually produce everything from like cell phones to laptops to blockchain, which I'm not in a position to evaluate. 
Okay. So, pe- so people think everything from cell phones, laptops, which we both understand, to blockchain, which we understand less. Um, <laughs> they attribute that a lot of these investments in um, in personnel and in like coding and training and all these things helped like directly contribute to the the development of these technologies. So, I think like that's kind of my my big takeaway, I guess, in terms yeah. of like the lasting impact of Y two K is its influence on. Um, the computer world but I mean yeah it was just interesting too I guess how recently I mean maybe it has like significance when we think the next time the world's going to end like there's lots of times it's referenced to when people are talking about climate change to be like oh climate change isn't real look at what happened to Y2K which maybe I don't think is the most useful application of it um, because there is overwhelming (laughs) consensus amongst climate scientists that um the climate yeah. is rapidly changing due to human influence. So I'm not going to go there today, but I mean, I... <laughs> on another day, I will rip into that. Yeah. Argument. It is yeah. useful to know that like people do use Y2K as a way to try and um, discredit the reality of climate change. Right. So right. maybe we can also think about that, but. Oh gosh. Yeah. You're like, I agree. Climate change is not real as shown by Y2K. It's just a moral <laughs> panic. It really is. Just like the witches. Don't you like it being warmer out? Don't you yeah. like it being cozy? <laughs> Honestly, well, it's weird. The there has not been a winter in Ottawa this year. I swear. Really? There, it's like literally. It's like in an even snow. Like this week, it snowed like four times, but like it doesn't stick. Like it just melts. Oh. And it was like above freezing like two days this week. I swear. Like it's it has not oh. been cold at all. And Ottawa is notoriously known for having a horrific winter for and freezing. Yeah, and snow and ice and like all this stuff it's like okay it's really not that bad but that might be climate change so so there's a win and a loss there (laughs) yeah yeah end of the world but we got one nice winter (laughs) oh um so let's do our ranking of snacks oh yeah okay sorry how are we ranking them again so um our system is will not go back Hmm. might go back or will go back. Like, we'll go out of your way to go back. Okay, right. And so the might, I think, will be our general largest category. Right. Um, because saying you will go out of your way to go back means that it was, like, 10 out of 10. Sort it of has life. to be exceptional. has to be exceptional. Yeah. Okay, you go first. Would you get your creme brulee again? I will go back. You will My go. My dad was, like, went crazy for it. Okay. He, he had an okay. apple pie one, and so it was sort of, like a cinnamon custard with like the the crackly sugar on top oh. top with like an apple compote oh that actually sounds he honestly really yeah he went nuts for it my yeah. aunt was loving it my my mom took a bite of it she loved it like we all it wasn't just like oh like it's good it was like wow yeah plus it's also creme brulee it's not sort of i feel like lately i've been eating a lot of croissants or fried things and right. it's just more pastries and you can get a lot of good pastries closer to us but right. I feel like a good creme brulee is hard to stumble upon. So I will yeah. be going back to crackle creme. Wow. Okay. That's big. Um, for me, for Cineholic, I liked it. Mm-hmm. I feel like I had the same issue as last week's episode insofar as I just don't crave, like I wouldn't like go out of my way to buy it just because I wouldn't go out of my way to buy cinnamon buns. Right. But I feel like if I were to get a cinnamon bun, I would definitely go there. Okay. Okay. So maybe I should make a new category for that. Would you say? Or you, like, don't, you don't want to let me, clearly. No. 
<laughs> you create new category. I'm just wondering, would you, like, if you were at a mall and yeah. there was a Cinnabon, would yeah. you say, oh, I'd rather Cinnabon as opposed to Cineholic, or is Cineholic good enough that you would go there instead? I would go to Cineholic instead. They're fresh okay. food. Okay. And so what's your, what's your new category? So my new category is for food that I really like and would go back to, but I just don't normally eat that food very much. Okay, so what if we call it Sam's category? Yeah, okay, it's my so it's Sam's category. So so I think most things like like last week with like the croissant from Brown Loaf, like I just don't yes. buy baked goods. That's I just true. feel like so like Gen Z of me to like not buy baked goods ever. But I can confirm. While we were at university, you would notoriously only get what was it banana loaf at the oh yeah at the campus cafe yeah 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 with the chocolate chips okay. <laughs> with the chocolate chips and that you really didn't branch out and even then it was it was rarely ever a must get it was just like if i'm here and i need a snack i will get the banana loaf <laughs> i'm a creature of habit what can creature i say of habit. <laughs> yeah totally okay well i'm glad to hear you enjoyed thank you i'm glad to yeah. hear too i want to try it when i come out to ottawa someday <laughs> yeah that's not is that a promise or a threat it's more of a threat Oh, okay. I will be coming. Good. I'm like Watch shaking. <laughs> I'm shaking. I'm shaking. Okay. Now that's so the end of the world. Let me just say that. <laughs> you came to Ottawa? <laughs> Why'd that's you came when, move over? That's when things finally start exploding. Yeah. What I've been waiting for. <laughs> All the bureaucrats are like, our computers are crushing. What the hell's going on? <laughs> it's just you being in the city. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks as always for listening, folks. If you have any feedback for us, positive, negative, constructive, mm. Please let us know. And if there's any topics yes. that you'd be interested in us covering, please let us know. We are happy to dive into different bites of history that you might have an interest in. Yes. So um, if you want to message us with suggestions on Eat It Up Pod is our Instagram. We have Eat It Up Podcast at gmail.com if you're more of an emailing sort. Totally. Totally. And we also, um, I don't think Spotify does it, but if you're listening to us on SoundCloud and would like to follow or rate us and same with Apple podcast, um, reviews really help us out. So if you have a chance to do that, please do so. <laughs> totally. If you guys do that, I think one day we'll be as famous as like Celine Dion or something. We'll be so That's what good. I was thinking. I like, not like mega famous, but Celine Dion famous. <laughs> yeah. Everyone stands Celine, like Canadian sweethearts. Canadian sweethearts. Yeah, she's goal, better than Shania Twain. <laughs> our goal is not to be very good, but to be very famous, which I think is a really laudable goal. So, yeah, that's kind of what I set out when we started this. Yeah, the quickest <laughs> way to become famous is through a podcast, famously. The second fastest. Yeah, way that's to how Kim famous, Kardashian did it. Maria. <laughs> <laughs> the second, fine, and the third most famous way to get famous is um, by doing a TikTok dance. That's funny, but we can't. Yes. Hear. But, we're uh, not opposed to it, but we're not opposed. Marie and I tried, but we got lots of hate mail, so we had to give, <laughs> it, we had to give it up. People, the younger ones, did not like us dancing. Let's say that they don't they like the way the body moves. They said very mean things about us. So, <laughs> okay, well, we'll talk to you all next week. Wahoo! <laughs> Wahoo! Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>